I, I've been thinking about the best way to approach the rest of the chapter. Um, as you've noticed, very often we stop a lot and talk and read very little text. And the reason for that is, as you've seen, is the text is quite dense, right? Often a, a single word or phrase carries a lot. The next bit is, on a certain sense, one idea and then a very elaborate analogy. And the problem with a very elaborate analogy is if you stop and do the analogy piecemeal, you don't actually capture the whole thing on the one hand. And on the other hand, the fact that the analogy is elaborate does mean that all the details matter. I think, therefore, the best thing to do um, is to explain the analogy, kind of the core of the analogy, before we go back into the text, kind of so we have a, a sense of what we're trying to understand. Um, and then we can go through the text, and you know, as the nuances and details are important, certain things need to be clarified, we can do that. Okay, so again, the, the goal here is to understand the um, complete nothingness or non-significance of the spoken word in a human being as an analogy to the insignificance of God's word. The idea being that if God's word is insignificant, then the creation which results from God's word is, as one of the students put it so nicely, less than nothing. And the introduction of something less than nothing in no way compromises Hashem's aloneness. So the first thing we did was we spoke about the spoken word in reference to the faculty of speech, in which case it's nothingness, it's, it's, it's insignificance is found in the fact that it costs nothing. The words can be produced ad infinitum. Then we went a step further that compared to thought, the spoken word is insignificant in two respects. One, it is redundant. The words that are spoken are already words that are contained in our thoughts. It's the same words. And it's all so hollow, it's empty. The sense of your being present in the spoken word is only by virtue of aligning your thoughts with your speech, but speech in of itself is devoid of any sense of the speaker. Okay. Now what we're going to do is we're talking about the spoken word to the soul itself. And yesterday I took a little bit of a detour, which I thought was an important detour, the notion of what is the self, what is the core of a person. Then there's different views in Judaism and how Hasidus um, incorporates both perspectives. And in the Tanya, we're taking the perspective that our faculties, our attributes, are defining features of us, even though Hasidus also does on some deeper level, they are not. Um, and then what we're doing is we're going to be comparing the spoken word to the faculties, the attributes of the soul, the defining features of the soul. And the focus here is going to be on, on love, and we started yesterday's class, we ended yesterday's class speaking about love, that love is um, a feeling, and it's an essential human feeling, a feeling of closeness, of desire, of longing, of yearning, of attachment, etc., etc. And the analogy is going to be is that the spoken word is nothing compared to the feeling of love Now, there's two parts to this analogy, okay? One is the contrasting 
of the love and the spoken word. But the other is understanding their relationship. In order to say that something is nothing, or to say any descriptive term about something, you need a reason to say it. In other words, if I were to say um, that someone else's troubles are meaningless, what? I know it's not nice, but I, I, I'm using this analogy for, for a reason. I would, right? I would have to establish a point of reference as to which that is both true and relevant for that to be meaningful, right? So I would say, like, you know, in comparison to the to you know, this bottle being blue, someone else's troubles are meaningless or irrelevant. And like, I mean, I guess yes, but like, what are you trying to say by that? It's weird, right? If I were to say that their troubles are meaningless to them, and that's probably false, right? I say their troubles are meaningless to me, well, that might be true, right? In other words, because their troubles were meaningful to me, I'd probably do something about them, and we clearly don't do everything about everybody's troubles, so clearly we have some notion of some people's troubles and, and problems counting more in our eyes and less, for whatever reasons, rightly or wrongly. Okay? So if we're going to say that the word is meaningless, the word is nothing, the word is insignificant compared to the feeling. I need to, well, why am I even comparing the two? Why am I saying, why am I putting the spoken word in reference to the feeling to begin with? Okay. So in order to do this, we need, we need to understand how Hasidus thinks about words. Okay. Now, the... the one thing to keep in mind, words are really originate in thought, right? We said the words originate in thought, they're just reproduced in speech. So we're going to focus not on the spoken word, we're going to focus on words and thought, recognizing that those spoken words are just, again, copying them out there in the world. Words, Chassidus says, are not part of the person. They're not part of the soul. Why? Why are words not part of the soul? And again, think about thoughts, right? If you words in your thoughts, your thoughts are occurring in your consciousness, right? Why are they not part of you? And don't say because you can change it because you also can change your feelings. You can change your understanding. You can change your values, right? So that's not the issue we're focusing on here. My values, my feelings, in this case, we're going to focus on my, my loves and desires, right? They are part of me. They are me in some sense, but my thoughts are not. Why? Thoughts or words? The, well, the words are things in the thoughts. Like, is it because they, like, they come from different things, like we're taught how to think? No. It's a means of expressing what we actually have. Like, it's a garment. So. Uh, yes, it is a garment, but... but, but. It's repeating your The, the trick here, the trick here is, what? Thought is a power that you have, it's not part of you. The thoughts are not part of you, okay? Thoughts, as the author was gonna go on to say, are linguistic. In other words, not everything that happens mentally is gonna be considered for our purposes thought. And generally speaking, when Chassidus thinks about Thought, it's generally referring to thought happening in language. There is some discussion about other types of thought as well. 
Okay. I'm going to explain. Only human beings have language. And if we don't understand what that means, then this analogy is going to be very difficult to understand. It's, just, it's, going, to, it's going to be very hand-wavy. Okay. Can dogs communicate? Yeah. Yes. Do they have language? No. Oh, no, they do language. They have language of their language. No, they don't. Like, no. Now, one second. Now, I want to be clear. Now, I want to be clear. If I'm saying they don't have language and I'm saying they can communicate, then I'm saying that not all communication is linguistic, right? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. If I just want using language as a synonym for a mode of communication or method of communication, then what I just said is meaningless, right? So, right, if, I can, if I'm going to concede that dogs communicate and I'm going to insist that dogs don't have language, then what am I saying? Not all communication is with language. Which then means to simply say language is a way you communicate doesn't tell me what language is. Okay? We're going to start with some, a few things, okay? Um, body language is not language. I realize we in use this, the word language in this, in this sense. Okay, why not? Is it not true that from your body language you communicate things to me and I communicate things to you? It is. Right? It is a way of communicating. Why is it not linguistic? It's not with words. Not with words. Signs, like... What are with words? Linguistic. Do we see we're going in circles? Like, like, like. I don't know, like animals have body language. Okay. If someone... It's communicating your thoughts to somebody else with words. If someone... If someone is sitting like this... And you say, why are you saying this? I'm like, I'm trying to express my flexibility and openness to new ideas. Why is That's that funny? No, why is that funny? Because there's a dissonance. Like, it doesn't do that, right? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Because if someone's like this in class and the teacher says, why are you like this? And says, I'm paying deep attention to every nuance that you're saying. That's why I'm doing this, right? It's like, what? No, it doesn't really work. Okay. If someone is screaming, right, and you ask them, what are you, what are you trying to convey there? I'm trying to create, convey my inner calm. Why is this all ridiculous? Because you're communicating something else with your body than what they just said. Because, words aren't just no, because the way in which the, for lack of words, the information is being conveyed is tied up in the way it's conveyed. You cannot convey calmness by running around hysterically screaming. You cannot convey openness by sitting tensely with your arms folded with a scowl on your face. You just can't, okay? Can a dog convey that it feels comfortable and at peace and has a sense of submission with its fur sticking out and baring its teeth? No. No, right? In other words, the, the, in other words, the medium is the message. The way you communicate is what you're communicating. You know bees are, can communicate where the, where the flowers with the nectar are to each other? Yeah. Okay, how do they do that? They dance. That's right. Do, can the bees decide that the dance is going to mean something different? No. No, it's kind of fixed. If you do this, it means that. If you do this, it means that. Can you change it? No. Okay, now. The way you're communicating is what we're communicating. Yes. Okay. Now, 
language is no language is not language. So let's let's take let's take um, a, a, a good example. You ever have this thing where someone where where, where someone says um, they just decimated them, and someone says, "You mean they killed one out of every 10? I said, "No, I didn't mean that. I mean they killed everybody." Well, you know, decimate means one out of ten. It's like an, it's a, the word comes from an ancient Roman practice that when a legion didn't behave properly, they would kill one out of every ten soldiers at random as a form of punishment to get them all to be in line. That's why it has the word, you know, dec, right? D-E-C means ten, like December, like, right? December was the, used to be the tenth month, right? Or, and they go on and on, you're like rolling your eyes like, why are you talking about this? I just said decimate. We all know what decimate means. Can we move on? So who's right? Are you right or are they right? That's right. Words are words don't mean anything. Words don't mean anything. Words are they are meaningless. They are empty. They are arbitrary collections of phonemes, which means particular sounds, or shapes. If you know how to say a word, you heard the word. If you know how to spell the word, you saw it. If you saw the word printed, you now have any sense of what it means? No, the word has no connection to what it means at all, which is why words can change their meaning. I thought, like, Hebrew, is Hebrew is not different. No, but also okay. our mind genuinely is limited by one second. That is a very good question, which is what we have to talk about. No, but our mind is limited to the words we say. We cannot be discussing. We're going to say that. We're going to talk about that as well. Okay. The first thing that we need to understand is that we are doing something very weird when we have language, okay? Is that we are taking things and using them to communicate things where it's really effectively arbitrary, okay? Um, what is arbitrary? Arbitrary means it, it could be this way, it could be that, it doesn't really matter. Okay, one of the difficult things when you're learning, if you're learning Torah, so you read many different works, if two works use the same words, does it mean that they're saying the same idea? No. If two works use totally different words, does it mean they're saying two different ideas? No. Right? In fact, you could literally have the same sentence that is meant by in two totally different ways. Right? For instance, one of the ways that we convey whether some, how something should be understood is not through the actual words, um, but through our tone of voice, which again is not linguistic, Right? If someone says, I am an idiot, does it really make a big difference whether they say it with one tone of voice or another tone of voice and figuring out what they mean? If someone says, I'm an idiot. What is that? What are they communicating? Regret. What? Regret. Right, they're communicating a sense of like recognizing their own failing to make a proper decision about things. Right? If someone looks... I'm an idiot. They're kind of expressing astonishment at how you're treating them. Two totally different meanings, right? Are the words the same? Yeah. Yeah. Words are weird. They're very weird. Okay? The, the way the, the Sefer Yetzirah, which is an ancient work of Kabbalah, says that, that words are like stones. They're lifeless. They carry nothing with them. 
And so it's almost, I'm using this word intentionally, magical that I can use words and somebody else comes to understand what I mean. Now, let's ask the question, when do we really need words and when do we not really need the words? For instance, can I express frustration without words? Yes. Can I express? Ideas really need words. And I'm going to illustrate this with, with, an, with an interesting thing. Usually when you first think about language, you think about it in a very kind of shallow way, that words represent particular things, right? So there's a word picture, and it represents this thing. There's a word cup, it represents this thing, right? Um, there's a word cap, it represents this thing, right? So on and so forth. Well, then we have more advanced words like, you know, you have verbs, right? So talking represents the thing that I'm doing, right? And then we can have words that describe things, right? So we could say clear describes the color of the picture, right? But is that so good, right? Okay, so I'm going to just throw out a list of words. I want you to tell me, given that everything, every word is supposed to like refer to something out there in the world, what these words refer to. We're going to start with a simple word. I. Me. Myself. Well, here's the already we have a problem, is that the word I, by definition, changes its meaning depending on who's saying it, right? So there's already a complex thing, right? There's a, it's a, a, in other words, it, is, it's, it's a, it requires an understanding of point of reference, Right? There is no thing in the world that the word I refers to, right? I is establishing point of reference. Same as the word you. Same as the word he or she, right? Okay? So, for instance, if I refer to God as he, what am I establishing about point of reference relative to God? Number one, that I am not God. I'm speaking about God as if I'm not God. And I'm speaking about God as if God is present where? Somewhere else. Where if I say refer to God as you, and if I refer to God as I, have you read the Shema recently? Can you give me the sitter? So the Shema. It's like, you know, fundamental Jewish text, right? So the second paragraph of Shema. Okay. Now, just to be clear, the second paragraph of Shema is part of Moshe's speech, right? Moshe makes a long speech, okay? So who's talking? Moshe. Moshe. And there's no point, and Moshe says, and this is what Hashem said. It's just Moshe talking, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, I will do this in the translation. I, no, no, that's the third paragraph. <laughs> and if you will listen to the commandment, if you listen to my commandments that I have commanded you today, like, okay, you know, Moshe just relayed the commandments of God. So, okay, we can, we can, we, we can be, that's not so disturbing. To love Hashem, your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. And I will give you the rain in its proper time. Now, last time I checked, people don't decide when it rains. Who decides when it rains? Mm. Yes, and it continues. Um, and you will gather your, 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 your grains and your vineyards and your olives. And I will give the grass to the fields for the animals. Who, who's the one who makes the grass grow? God. Is this weird? Ah, so our sages say, this is God speaking out of Moshe's throat. Because, again, the word I, you have to have this very abstract notion. One second, one second. It requires you to have this abstract notion of point of reference. It's a very abstract notion. And you know what's really fun with little kids? They don't have full mastery over it. That's why you can play these fun games with little kids. You go to a little kid, um, and you say, what's your name? And they say, I don't know, Yankee. And you say, who's Yankee? You say, I'm Yankee. You say, I'm Yankee? You say, no, no, I'm Yankee. So I'm, and they think this is really funny. And no, no adult thinks it's funny because you figured it out. But like the idea is still like, it's still like 
novel and interesting in their mind. So it's funny like how the meaning of the sentence completely changes depending on who's saying it and they find this very stimulating and very funny. I mean, eventually, you know, toddlers grow out of this. It's like peekaboo, right? There's a psychological notion called object permanence, which is that things are there even when you can't, even when you don't see them. When, you're, when, this, when, the, when the baby is going through like their psyche developing that sense, they find peekaboo very stimulating. Before that, peekaboo was boring because like they don't like nothing happened. And afterwards, peekaboo was boring because like obviously you're there when you can't see you. But in the in between stage when it's still like happening in their psyche, it's like wow, you're, so are you there? Oh, you're still there? Are you? Wow. There was a teacher who said that kids think that you are literally like dying every time that you're going out of the room, and that's like oh, why they cry. Yeah, they, well, it's not the same because they, they don't have a concept of death. But you, they, 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 there's no sense of you're still being in existence. Yeah, it's not like you would have to have a more sophisticated sense to experience it as, as like death. But whatever, yeah. So, so that's already like simple words, right? Now let's do another word. Okay, if. What does if refer to out there in the universe? Is this an if? Where's an if? Can you? If is if is a word that we use to express conditionality between two things, right? That's a very abstract concept. Does it out there in the world, right? It's a concept, yeah, right? Can't you can't show if, right? How about the? <laughs> no, it's not actually. So the, right? This is what linguistics is. This is actually quite fun. The, no, the is making sure that the noun being noun or noun phrase being referred to is understood as the one that has already been um, referred to earlier as opposed to a new one, right? So for instance, I say um, the car, right? It's, a That's, that, it's not just a specific, it's a car that the reader or speaker should presumably already be aware of. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's a specific one. Whereas if I say, now some languages, and, and it varies from language to language, there's particulars of this, okay? Um, Right, this is by the way, a big deal. When you learn Chumash, um, the sages make a big deal about it that there's some haze that seem to be out of place. Like for instance, um, um, by the Akedah, by the, by the binding of Isaac, it says that Avram reached Hamokim. The place. So that means this place has been referred to earlier. No, it's been the, the place been referred to earlier. Now, the simplest understanding is that it's the place that God will show them. Right? But the sages say it could also be referring to a place we've already discussed previously in the Chumash. Maybe it's uh, the place um, that um, God created Adam from. Because God did create Adam out of some dirt, right? That dirt was in a place. And then the sages go on further and say, later on it says that, that Yaakov encountered the place. Which place? It's the same place. These are things that you have to have some signs of like abstractions and conceptions for this stuff to work. Okay, now this is really weird, right? The meanings of words change in sentences based on other sentences and and interesting rules that vary from language to language. Okay, Um, so for instance, I am an idiot means one thing. Am I an idiot? Means something else. All I did is change the order of the words, right? Yeah? Okay. How do you, what, 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 I am an idiot means what? It's a statement about, about myself, right? It's asserting that I am an idiot. 
But if I say, am I an idiot? It turns it into a question. Now, then you would need to use context, tone of voice to understand it. Should we take it sarcastically, seriously, whatever? How do you do that in Hebrew? How do you turn a statement into a question? Anishote. I'm, I'm an idiot. No, that, I mean, language. Every language can do this. Ha'im, you have to add a word, right? That's interesting. In English, you just move around the order of the words. In Hebrew, you add a new word. It's completely arbitrary. There's no, right? Or this is really great. How do you know who's the subject and who's the object? In other words, like this. Um, the dog bit the man. Who did the biting? The dog. Who was bitten? The man. The man bit the dog. Who did the biting? Who was bitten? Simple enough, right? So you just use word order to convey subject and object of the verb, right? Simple enough, right? That's quite abstract. Well, it depends who's doing the biting, right? The su- right okay. But now, how do you do that in Hebrew? No. If I were to say, um, so kelev means dog, and nashach means bit, and, and ish means man. Kelev nashach adam. What does that mean? doesn't matter. Uh, where's this S coming from? The S is what's called the direct object indicator because in Hebrew, word order doesn't tell you subjects and objects. So they have a word and you put this word S or et in front of the object to tell you it's an object. That's what it's there for. And by the way, that, so for instance, um, how do you know... Um, how do you, how, it's, there's a verse, there's a puzzle that says, um, there's a verse that says, Ish es aviv ime tiro. A man, his mother, and his father, he must fear. Okay, now, one clue to this is that, it, is the verb is in the singular. But, but if you take that as, aside, right? If I were to say, if, it, if the verse had said something like, um, a man, a woman, his, their father and their mother, they must fear. You wouldn't know who's supposed to be fearing who. But you would have to add the word S to make that clear, unless context made it clear. Okay? But that only exists in Hebrew, right? Which is why like, people who don't speak Hebrew, right? They get, they get very frustrated with this whole S thing. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. You see what I mean? Like language is like, it's, it's, it's its own thing completely separate from the meaning you're trying to convey. Right? And it's like, it, it takes these, this, this like inanimate stuff, sounds and symbols, whatever, and makes these weird rules for how they get arranged. And then somehow magically we use that to like convey meaning to each other. And also in different languages, there are words that are not like, oh. there are the concept that, that is right. not the concept in another language. Like that is not a word. Like there is no synonym for it. Right. And so some languages don't have have more succinct ways of conveying certain things. It doesn't have to do it more lengthily, right? For instance, there's a word in Hebrew, tuma. What is tuma? Impurity. See, here's the thing. Impurity is just putting a prefix that negates or in front of the word purity. There is a word, there is a word in Hebrew for purity, tahara, right? right? So you could just make a word of negate, negating purity, but there's actually a separate word for tuma, which, you know, maybe that means there's something different about the concept, maybe there isn't, but... So you see language is like a whole different thing. Now, like you can study dogs and chimpanzees and, and whales and their communications. You never have to get into any of this stuff ever yeah. because they don't have language. Do they have communication? Yeah. Okay. Now, do you see there's a big 
jump between the human experiences of feelings, desires, concepts, and words. It's like, it's like not the same genre. Okay. One way of seeing this, has everyone watched a foreign film? Yeah. Shame on you. Um, <laughs> rabbis aren't supposed to support watching movies. So if you watch a foreign film and there's no, and there's no subtitles, can you figure out what's happening? Yeah, yes. a little bit. Foreign it depends what you're watching. It does depend what you're watching. What does it depend on? It's probably it's like, you are with the same. <laughs> no, you mean if you're watching what type of informational thing or like... Uh, in other words, the more... right. The more, the more what you're watching, the more what you're watching, the more you're watching touches on human and the human, the human element, the easier time you're going to figuring it out. Why? Because behavior, body language, and tone of voice is doing a lot of the work. Right? That doesn't mean you're going to get all the details and no, but you get a lot of it, right? On the other hand, right, if it's an explanation of how to make a, a machine, you're probably going to get nothing out of that. Because again, first off, you know why it's very easy to figure out? The more the animal's mode of communicating is similar to human communication, the easier it is. For instance, when we are afraid, what happens to our bodies? We shake, we curl, we get tense. So mammals being afraid are very easy for us to figure out. Insects are very hard for us. We can't figure out insects. You have to do, like, do a lot of study to figure out how, what insect communication works like. Right? The more, so mammals are easier, and the more sophisticated the mammal, generally the easier it is. Yeah. Like, for instance, whales and dolphins require a lot of study, because even though they're mammals, like, a lot of the modes that we have, they don't have. Right? You can't exactly have a dolphin like, curl up in a ball. Like, it doesn't work like that. Right? So, whereas if a, a dog or a cat or a monkey does, like, you're like, oh, I, I, I know what that is. I do that also. Right? Does this make sense? Okay, so there is this huge jump from the experiences of being a human being to language. Now, where does language first show up? Not in our spoken language, but in our, in our thought, in our mental language, right? So where is there a huge jump between our human experiences, say, of desire and language? So there is a, something weird happening when I go from the desire for chocolate cake to having the words chocolate cake show up in my consciousness. And the proof that it's really weird is if that I never learned English, other words would pop into my mind, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. But that means that the language does not really follow from the experience. If I'm afraid, what follows from my fear on, on the level of like, like the body, like I get tense yeah. on the level of like my tone of voice, right? Th those things follow, things that follow directly from the emotional experience. Language does not follow from the emotional experience. That's instinct. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. I, I, I'm not trying to like, I, wa I want to describe this phenomenon so we understand what the analogy is. I don't want to go, there's something weird that happens. Weird just simply means I want you to observe that it does not follow that because I have a desire for chocolate cake, Right? Those particular sounds should enter my consciousness. Chocolate. But you're talking about emotions, desire, things like that. Right. Oh. I'm going to just, I, mean, I said we're going to focus specifically on desire. Okay, now, 
Here's the other thing though. If you never have any emotions in relation to things, do you ever think about them? No. No. So this is weird. This is very weird. Thoughts are completely unlike emotions at all, right? And yet, what produces the thoughts? Emotions. This is, this is an interesting phenomenon. Your thoughts are the result of your emotions, but the actual thoughts are not really the result of your, there's something, and I'm using this word weird because I would like you not to wave away the weirdness. It's, you have to sit with the weirdness to appreciate the analogy. There is no reason why a desire for understanding how algebra works should lead me to think of the, of the actual word algebra. The desire to understand how algebra works is about a desire to acquire some kind of conceptual understanding of things, right? It has nothing to do with algebra. Right? It could, we could call it tumaka or sluda or anything else. It wouldn't matter, right? So why, why should the emotion produce anything? And yet it does. Is there an answer? It doesn't matter right now. It, mat- it, do- it does not matter. You can ask me again and I'll still tell you. So no, it exists. Not if we're going to talk about it. No, it doesn't matter. So now... We ask tomorrow. <laughs> maybe. You can ask tomorrow. I'll decide if I want to answer tomorrow. So if, if that's the case... Does it make sense since the emotions are the thing that generates the thoughts? Does it make sense to think of the thoughts in terms of the emotions? The thoughts, where did they come from? What, what brought them about? The emotions, right? So, so it, may, it does make sense to think about what the thoughts are vis-a-vis the emotions because they, they stand in relationship with each other, right? It's not like there's emotions over here, there's thoughts have nothing to do with each other. The actual thoughts were brought about by the... Emotions. But I, when I look at that, I have to appreciate that the thoughts are n- nothing like the emotions at all. There is nothing human about the actual thoughts. There's something human about desire. There's something human about knowledge. There's something human about fear. There's nothing human about random combinations of sounds and symbols. So one thing is bringing to something totally alien. My emotions, when they generate thoughts and language, are generating things that are totally alien to what it is to be human. And yet, for some strange reason, we can then use those to communicate to ourselves and to others. Which then leads to an important point. This is the key point of the analogy. Does the emotion, would it, 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 does the emotion feel that bringing about the words is somehow part of what it is to be. My desire for chocolate cake somehow necessarily entails the words, the sounds that produce chocolate cake? No. And yet, it comes from that. That's the thing we have to sit with. That's the media analogy. Yeah, someone over there had their hand and was waiting very patiently. You're saying that emotions bring about thoughts? You need to say, like, with the algebra example, you can't think about algebra unless you, like... Yeah, you have to feel some. You have to feel some emotion towards the thing for thoughts of it to occur to you. Yes, and by the way, that's not just true about thoughts you generate yourself. That's even true about thoughts that come to other people. For instance, if you are in no way emotionally engaged with what I am saying, I can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and you will not actually hear what I am saying. Right? Whether you are producing the thoughts purely from your own 
or the thoughts are you, are you are hearing what others are saying and that's reasoning thought, it requires an emotional engagement. Are thoughts memories? No. They're, they're, they're just words. Combinations of words. Which are combinations of sounds and symbols that only mean things when they're arranged in certain ways to us in very arbitrary ways. Yeah. You said there's nothing human about our actual thoughts, but aren't humans the only people that have thoughts? That is true. I will give you an analogy. Is there something human about having a home? No, I don't think so. I didn't say shelters, yeah. I said home. A home is a place that belongs to you, that you are entitled to be there because it belongs to you. Couldn't a bear have a home? Like Bears do not have homes. They have shelters. It's very different. Why? Because they don't own it. Because there's no concept of ownership. What about kids? Like, there, it's not... Do you, have, do you have kids? No, no. What about kids? <laughs> I have kids. They definitely have this concept. They're very big into this is mine. No, no, okay, so, 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 no, so, so, no, so, okay, here's the thing. There's a very big difference between, there's a very big difference between belonging and ownership as something in it of itself, and us using it as an abstraction to how different animals deal with resource competition. In other words, like this. The bear needs a place to be safe so it doesn't, you know, get hurt during the winter when it hibernates, right? That make sense? Okay. Now, there's only so many caves, there's so many bears, right? This can create some problems, right? So the bears will try to get a cave and then try to make sure that the cave doesn't get taken from them, okay? It's entirely pragmatic. Um, some animals, God created them to be more social. Some God, animals, God created them to be more um, solitary, right? And that therefore means that how they allocate resources is going to change, hence animals marking territories and things like this. There is something very different that happens with a person, which is that a person feels a kind of worthiness by virtue of the fact that there is a spot somewhere on earth that belongs to them and that they are entitled to be there unconditionally no matter what because it's theirs. Even if that person almost never goes there. And even if the person has no practical use for the space. Now, I'm not going to why that is, but, but that, is a, that is a feature of human beings. That's actually... Um, one of the reasons why someone who has no home um, is, is from a, you know, we all think there's something off about that. If a person were to like be really, really rich and like live in hotels their whole life, on some gut level, it feels like there's something off about that. Whereas if a person lives in a shack that leaks, it's like, oh, they're poor, sad. But like, there's something normal about that. Because there's notion. So now little kids, they do this. The little kids try to carve out a little space of stuff that's theirs, and it's mine, and it belongs to me, for no pragmatic reasons. Hence, little kids fight with each other. It's like, it's mine. Well, you weren't using it. You don't need it. You don't even want it anymore. Yeah, but he took it without asking. What's the big deal? You haven't 
played with that toy in six months. You didn't even remember that you had it. But it's mine! Right? It's a weird thing. Okay. So the home is like the deepest expression of that. Okay. Or is there anything human about a pile of rocks? But could the pile of rocks become a home? Okay. So words are like a pile of rocks. Can we strangely use those combinations of words to express very human things to ourselves and to each other? Yeah, but that's how we're using the words. Those aren't the words themselves. Only humans can do that, right? So we can make rocks into a home and we can make sounds and symbols into means of communicating deep human feelings and ideas. But at the end of the day, the things themselves are not human. They're just stuff. Rocks are just physical things hanging out there and words are just kind of, they're like the metaphysical equivalent of a rock, just there. They're just a sound or a symbol. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything of its own. And so this is, the, this is the kind of the key to the analogy. The initial raw human experience does produce language. But the language is completely alien to the human experience. Now, if the, if, if the language starts off with my thought, and then, you go, and then, all, and then the spoken word is just the copying that, right? Well, then the spoken word is also utterly in itself meaningless. Okay. Okay. So now I'm going to, because I said I want, the core of the analogy is actually like a heart. It's not an intuitive thing. You have to like be in a certain way of thinking to get it. I now want to carry it over to the analog about God, make sure we kind of have that clear, and then we can look into the text. I did both, right? On the one hand, language is brought about by what? By emotion. So that's why they are in relation with each other. And yet, how different are they? They're nothing alike. Language is completely lacks any humanity. There's no, there's no human experience to it. It's just, a, it's just weird combinations of, 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 of sounds and symbols that somehow we can use to convey meaning to ourselves and to each other. But they themselves... They're, 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 they're dead, lifeless things. You know, I was thinking about how it's like a, an artist wants to convey some message and you can use watercolor, you can use oil, you can use whatever, and you can make this like beautiful message, but the paint itself is really meaningless, but it's needed in order for you to... Right, although Hasidus would say that, that, that really what you're using to convey the message is not the paint. What you're using to convey the message is the color. And then it's not like language because the interaction of the colors, you really can't express certain things in certain ways. You technically have a problem. You just can't have pure color, so you need some, some paint to have the color. It would be more like modern art. Where you're like, someone puts the, tapes the banana to the wall and you're like, okay, I mean, I guess that's supposed to mean something to somebody, but I can't figure it out. At the Mevinim? See, when someone switches languages, it's a little bit weird if you don't speak the other language, right? Because it's like banana on the wall. Like, what is that supposed to mean? Right? If I start screaming in, 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 in fear, you, you, you would already know what that means, right? You don't have to have it explained. Okay. So now, here's the analog. This is going to sound like a word game. But it's it's not meant to be a word game. But it's as we just said, we only have the only way we can communicate with each other is using words. So we're gonna have to use them. 
Can you act this out? <laughs> the only way we can communicate abstractions is with words. If you want to just communicate raw feelings, you can do it without words. Okay. So, by the way, that's actually just parenthetically. When children start to use words, it's like, whoa. But there, there are more emotions that are coming in and more like... More emotions that are coming in as we use, as we get no, to know certain words. That's, like, that, 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 that's fine. But that has, to do with, that has to do with other factors that I don't want to go into because it's an analogy. I just wanted to say about the kids when these kids start using words. Like the, when you have a little child and they first start saying things like, I am hungry, I am tired, you all of a sudden feel like a human being showed up. Because it's like all of a sudden they don't just experience the hunger, they conceptualize the hunger. There's like a, a conceptual awareness of there's a me, there's an experience, and I'm having the experience. Um, also, when people like are suffering from like very, very deep emotional problems, right, the ability to find ways of speaking about them forces them to deal with them conceptually because of that relationship. Okay, fine. But the words themselves. So um, we're going we're gonna to take a word. And the word is friendly. What does friendly mean? Um, no, no. What does the word friendly mean? Don't describe. Like friend. Like, like, right. Having a quality like a friend, right? That, that's generally what it means, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what the. Um, what does godly mean? Like godly. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Are the, are the spheros godly? Are the spheros godly? The spheros godly. Yes. Yes. That's what makes them spheros, right? They somehow convey a likeness of God in some interesting way, right? We spoke about yesterday about right how our own um, human um, at- attributes and faculties, right? They, are, they, they define us and convey our humanity even on some deeper level of humanity transcends them. Okay, fine. Okay, so... So the spheros are godly, just like our emotions are human. Are our words human? The words themselves. The actual language itself. The language itself, not the use of the language for human ends. The actual, the actual, no. Okay, so are God's words godly? No. No, they are not godly. So Terry's not godly. Wait, I want us to... Before you ask, do you hear what I'm saying? If we're contrasting, right, in the analogy between, say, the experience of desire, right, and the words that show up in my thought as a result of that desire, that those words are not part of my being human and my human experience at all, right? They're just an arbitrary collection of sounds and symbols, which happens to me to convey my desire for cake. And if it happens to be that way for you, I can then say it out loud and you'll also know that I want cake, but that's about the end of it. If there's, nothing, there's nothing desiring and cake-like about the words cake or desire for that matter. And th- so that move from emotion to thought, right, moves from something human to something which isn't human. Maybe something that the human is using, but it's not human. The words themselves are not human. The words are my thought. To be godly means, like, to, it, it, it's defined by the way it conveys a sense of God, right? Just like friendly means it has, it has, it's friend-like. Well, if... The divine attributes are godly. What about the divine words? Are they godly? No. That's why they're called words. If they were godly, we would say that there's just more divine attributes. In other words, the fact that it's not like it's not like 
oh, we, we decided to be cute and switch from spheros to words. There's an actual like, reason you shifted there. When I'm talking about my human attributes, I'm talking about things a human being experiences by virtue of the fact that they're a human being, given all the caveats we said yesterday, desire, fear, understanding, hope, etc. right? When I move now to talk about you know, combinations of sounds and symbols, that's not that at all, right? That's a, that's a quantum leap. Well, if there's this whole set of spheres, there's a whole set of ways that God conveys his godly being, hence the spheres are godly, and, well, then why shift to start talking about God's words? His thinking words, his spoken words, what, what, what are we trying to indicate by moving to speaking about words, language, letters? To indicate that these things are no longer godly. So are God's words godly? No. Now I'm going to play a language game. But it's not a language game. Do we often use the word godly or divine, which is a more fancy for the same idea, to refer to the fact that they are gods? Like these are godly commandments. And what we mean is that these are God's commandments as opposed to like human beings made these commandments. Or we don't really mean that, it has a, that there's a quality of being like God. It just, it's kind of like, it's an attribution. Who, to whom do they belong? Who gets the credit? Right? These are Rabbi Kaufman's words. That doesn't mean that they're, right? It doesn't mean they're like me. It just means that they're mine and I'm using them and I'm responsible for them, right? Are God's words and godly in that sense? Obviously. In other words, are God's words... Godly depends what you mean by godly. Do you mean that they have this quality of what it's like to be God and if you could somehow experience the words, it would be like encountering God? What's the answer? Are they like that? No. If you want to know what I mean, if you just hear someone speaking, no tone of voice, just the words in a language you don't understand, do you have any sense of what they're feeling, what they're experiencing from those? No, there's nothing human in the words. On the other hand, you can clearly tell that, that, I mean, it's someone talking, right? Those are someone's words. So if we could experience the divine word, what would we experience? No, we would not. We would experience that God is a being who is... Oh, alive. Who's doing something. He's speaking. He's making it. But would we have any sense of who he is and what he is like from the words themselves? Unless we spoke his language. If we spoke his language, then maybe through his words we could get at his feelings. Just like if I say, I desire chocolate cake, and you speak English, then assuming I'm not lying to you, you know what I'm feeling from the words. But the words themselves don't actually do that. So you end up with this very weird thing about God's words. If you look at them from our perspective, like these are the words of God, these are the words that bring creation into existence. This is our sense of God's involvement in reality, right? What could be more godly than that? And it's like, well, God looks at the words and says, those are just words. There's nothing like me. The spheros, the divine attributes, that's at least like me in some sense. And so if you're looking at it from God's point of view, as once God gets to the level of his thoughts, he looks at that and says, that's not me anymore. That's, 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 that's nothing. It's just... If you were to look at just your words, just, just the, even the words in your thoughts, not how you're using them, 
not what you're trying to accomplish with them, the actual words and language in your thought. That's not part of what it is to be human. Maybe how I use them to reveal my humanity to myself or then as the basis for speech to reveal human things to others, maybe that, but, it's, but there's nothing to the words. It's alien. It's alien and, and, and irrelevant. It's not part of what it is to desire to have a word desire. It doesn't matter what language you're using, right? The language is irrelevant. If I need to communicate that, maybe I now need language. One of the things that is discussed in Hasidus, it is not discussed here, is how does that occur? How do you go from human attributes and experiences to language? How does that happen? How does God go from spheros, from divine attributes which convey his godly being in some sense to this divine word which has the power to ha- have an effect but, it, but it's nothing godlike about it. It doesn't have any of his godliness conveyed in it itself. How does that happen? How does that jump occur? Our purpose in this discussion is not how it occurs, is that it occurs. That if somehow the emotion leads to language in our thoughts, then that means that at least in terms of where they're sourced, at least in terms of their root, language is utterly nothing. Because language is rooted in the human desire, and the human desire isn't linguistic. Language is rooted in human fears, and human fear is not linguistic, etc., etc., etc. And that difference is the is a parallel to the difference between God's revelation of his being, the godliness of the divine attributes, the spheros, versus the divine language, first in thought and then in speech. And so vis-a-vis God, even as he relates to the looks at the words that he is speaking, what are they? Absolutely nothing. Okay. That's the analogy in a... Outside of the text, yeah. Is there a reason why the altar goes in this order? Because he's working upwards. Why not work the other way? Because it's obvious. Like it's more obvious that words mean nothing to. Do Do you want me? To, do you want me to answer the power of speech itself? Do you want me to answer you with, um, in, in a way that's politically incorrect or whether it's politically correct? Incorrect. Okay. Well, I could do the truth in both ways. If I would, sometimes I'll just tell you the truth or verse will make you feel good. I'll tell you the truth either way, but one way is politically incorrect, but much more interesting. Okay. There are three blessings we say in the morning blessings. Are you familiar with this? Um, that are phrased in the negative. A non-Jew, a slave, and a woman. Now, why are those three blessings there? Simple, not you know, straightforward. What's the reason for these blessings? Because it's, these blessings are on a basic level referring to the obligation to do mitzvahs. The idea is the more obligated you are, the better it is. Jews have more obligations than? A slave who is Jewish has less obligations than a free, than a free Jew. And a Jewish man has more obligations than? 
Now, what were to happen if a Jewish man were to say, thank you for not making me a woman? Does that not incorporate that he has, he has the obligations of a free man and therefore he doesn't have, therefore the slave and the non-Jew have already been? Yeah. So there's a discussion in Jewish law. It's discussed. I don't remember the, everyone's opinion, but there's a discussion in Jewish law. It, it's not so simple that if a man by mistakes makes the blessing, not that, thank God there's not a woman, or a woman makes the blessing, thank God they're not a slave, they can then go back and make the blessing that goes before because you already implied it. And there's an idea of building one thing on top of the other. Not only this, but even this, but even this, but even this. Now, why is it, why would the sages want us to do things like that? Right? Why not just say one thing that contains everything? And the answer to that should be fairly obvious, right? Our appreciation of things happens when they are fleshed out and not when they are given succinctly, right? If you just like say a simple idea, which has a lot of depth to it, like, okay, fine, yeah. Okay. But if you move from level to level to level, your appreciation deepens. So what is the way in which God's words are nothing in the lowest level of things, the least form of nothing? Just one second. Power of speech. In what way are they even more nothing? In what way are the ultimate nothing? Right? That idea of moving in that direction is an important part of spiritual growth. You see that idea laid out in those blessings. You see that idea laid out here. It, it, it's even not an idea in spiritual growth. It's also an idea in comprehension. Many times the sages, even when making a teaching, will say this, this, and this. And the, and the Tom will say, well, the last one implies the other ones and say, that's true. But the teacher wanted to do it in this form where you build so there's a deeper appreciation of what's happening as you're going. But you could also build the appreciation the other way because the most obvious one you say first. And then even the nuance of like, where you think that the power of speech is important, or say even to that which is not important, speech is important. No? What your argument is now, you want to say, is that you could argue the other way, that the, yeah. the more novels working the other way. Yeah. It depends whether we want to emphasize the degree of nothingness as something that we need to come to terms with, or the novelty of it being nothing. In other words, and he wants to emphasize the, the, the point is not to impress you with the novelty. The point is to come to terms with how nothing really is, because that's the part that's hard to swallow, right? We like to think that we must be important because God created us. And so the thing that's hard to swallow is not the novelty that we're nothing, but the degree to which we're nothing. Yeah. Um, how come you don't like, say the blessings in a positive way? Like, thank you for making me a free man or. So, one of, so, so, so that's actually. The, the, um, one of the explanations that's given is that once, is that if you may say them in the, if you say them in the positive, then you are, are already just affirming that one thing and you can only make one blessing. I, I can't make, how would I make, how would I, how would I make three separate blessings if I did it in the positive? What would be the first blessing I would make? Well, and now it's one blessing. I can, now that I'm a free man, that, inc- that it obviously implies I'm not a woman and I'm not a slave, and so I only get one blessing. Thanks for making me a Jew. Thanks for making me a Jew is how many blessings? One. Thanks for making me... Thanks for making me a Jew. Thanks for making me a woman. That, that one you couldn't do in this way of reasoning because there's, there's nothing additional there. Thanks for making me... Thanks for making me... Um, a Jew, right? Well, what kind of Jew am I? Oh, I was saying, you, what you want to say is you want to do is like, thanks for making me a Jew is one thing. And then I say, thanks for making me free is another thing. 
and thanks for making me a man as a, as a, as a third thing. I remember reading why, the reason why this was. I think the argument was is that once you're saying something in the affirmative, we don't make unnecessary blessings. Those things that can, things that, when the sage instituted blessings, things that could be grouped together would be grouped together. So if you say them in the affirmative, once you say I am, you should include all the things that I am into one blessing. But what you're saying you're not, those clearly have to are distinct statements. I think I remember seeing an argument like that somewhere. There's all these technical rules about it, but the point I was bringing up is that that notion of building on things rather than trying to make everything into one succinct thing um, is something that shows up a lot in Judaism. The rest of the brachas you're okay with me. What? Well, the rest of the brachas are for different things. So it's each of these brachas. I'm not understanding what you're saying. <laughs> okay, you said the reason why could be that. We this is off of memory I didn't prepare, so I could be making mistakes. Just keep that in mind. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, that if we're doing, if we're saying, think, if we're doing it in a positive way. We're making affirmative statements. Yes. That should be in one. Yeah, because it's conceptually one issue. In other words, what we're saying is I'm showing gratitude for the level of obligation I have regarding mitzvahs. So it doesn't make sense to now cut that out. Like, I have an obligation of a Jew and an obligation of, like, but if I say it in the negative, I get three. Because I, those I necessarily have to make three distinct statements. But I'm speaking about affirmatively my obligation. It's just to say what my level of obligation is and be done. It's in terms of obligation of Right. It's in terms specifically of that one thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Where at, right. Yeah. The, I mean, there's other whole discussions about that, but like the most straightforward explanation of that is referring to the obligations of mitzvahs. Um, yes. So every time you say you are thanking God that you're, um, that he didn't make you a Gentile, you're thanking God for the fact that you're not allowed to eat shellfish and that you're not allowed to drive on Shabbos. That's what you're thanking him for. Not that, you, not that you observe those things, but that you have to do them whether you like it or not. Right. <laughs> That's what you're thinking for. Which is helping. Why are you so happy about that? But okay. It's a different theological yeah. question. Okay. So now, let's read the text inside. Okay. We did a lot, but now we're going to... So you see where there's this... Where... where um, okay. Well, the The... the now that we, I've explained it all, um, let's... Essentially, the main idea, but there's a lot of words. So let's go from the... the let's go from right after... But let's actually go back to where he said, not to mention. So the second to last line on the left side of the column, the bottom. Not to mention what is compared with the essence and unity of the soul, these being its ten attributes mentioned above, chachum, bin, das, etc., from which are derived the letters of thought that are clothed in speech when it is uttered. So that's the first point, right? What produces the... What produces the thought, which the speech is based on? Uh, um, attributes. The attributes, right? And specifically, it's the emotional ones. For thought can be defined in terms of letters, which I used instead of letters, I said linguistic, but same idea, right? As speech, except that in the form of they are more spiritual and refined. But the ten attributes, chachamina, daskabad, and so forth, are the root and cause of the thought, and prior to being clothed in the garment thought, still lack the element of letters, right? And that's what I spent about an hour just explaining, right? Human experiences produce language, but human experiences aren't linguistic, and linguistic things have nothing to do with what it is to have human experiences. So the source of language is non-linguistic. Right? You see how? For example, and then he gives you a long, fleshed-out example. 
When a man suddenly becomes conscious of a certain love or desire in his heart, before it has risen from the heart to the brain to think and meditate about it, it has not yet acquired the element of letters, right? So stage one is you feel a desire, but it is not yet to reach the point where you, right, you, have, a, you have an experience of desire, just one second, but you don't have yet thoughts. It is only simple desire and longing in the heart for the object of his affection. All the more so before he began to feel his heart a craving desire for that thing, and yet as it... And, and, and it is yet confined within the realm of his wisdom, intellect, and knowledge. That is, the thing is known to him to be desirable, gratifying something good and pleasant to attain and cling to. So, go one step further. Not you desire, but your consciousness has knowledge of this thing as a desirable thing, which is a necessary thing for you before you have feel desire. At both of these stages, the broad desire itself, and all the more so the awareness of the thing as a desirable thing before you feel the desire, is there any language happening there? No. For instance, to learn some wisdom or eat some delicious food. Only after desire and craving have already found their way into the heart through the stimulus of his wisdom, intellect, and knowledge and then ascended once more back to the brain to think and meditate on how to translate his craving from potential into practical with a view to actually obtaining the food or acquiring that wisdom. It is here that the so-called letters are born in his mind and such letters corresponding to the language of the nation, employing them in speech and thought about all things in the world. I mean, at that point, when you start relating to the object of your desire as kind of a real thing you want to attain what starts showing up in your consciousness language and your language he points out here is arbitrary every nation has their own and that if you now think so what was the status of language prior to my thinking of language in the desire or what is the status of language in my knowledge of this thing as desirable it has no standing whatsoever it's completely alien has no place and yet that's where it came from that is weird and pondering that gets us our deepest sense of how God's words are absolutely nothing Making to God. Him. What? Making him as alone as he was before because whether their words are there or not there is meaningless to, to the godly revelations that, that are the source of the words. And the words that really show up are, are words of thought, not words of speech. The words of thought of speech have to get their, be sourced in the words of thought and get their life in the words of thought. And even then, when the words are actually spoken, it doesn't cost them anything to speak them. So the whole thing is a big nothing. And we're like, well, oh, God created us. It's so amazing. I don't know. So it is crazy. Now, I'm, there's, there's a lot of interesting little nuances here. You notice like he has this idea that go, things start in the brain and go to the heart and go back up to the brain. Um, at what point does the shift happen where you go from raw human experiences to thought? Like, there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, I may do a class on those things. I may not. In, other words, in terms of the main ideas of the chapter, we're done. Um, also, why he gives two analogies, right? Food and wisdom. That seems weird. What? Because um, one's only emotional, one's intellect. No, both are emotional. Right, but one includes intellect. Both include intellect. So you include Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to conceptualize the food as something good for you before you desire it. That's how human psyches work. So I might do another class on some of these nuances, or we might move on to chapter 21. I'm going to weigh that Let's see what I do. Tomorrow we have questions and answers. Yes? This is probably included in the nuances, but I was mapping out emotions to thoughts to speech, but then here in the text it's, it's 10 attributes to thoughts to speech, and as we know, three of the attributes are not emotions. Right. I'm so, not sure I have a right so, so what he, so because you notice he made this shift that, that within desire, there's the experience of desire, 
And then there's the knowledge of the thing as an object of desire. So the first three, the Chacham, Bin, and Das, are the, the, the knowledge, the awareness of the thing as desirable, which is a human experience. And then that leads to the emotional experience of desire towards that object of desire, the food or wisdom, whichever one you're referring to. And neither of those things are actually linguistic. Right? Your soul's sense of the desirability of wisdom is, is nothing to do with language per se. And then the feeling of the yearning, the longing to attain that wisdom is also not linguistic. But once it actually enters your mind in some kind of practical way, as he says, all of a sudden there, language starts developing to let you kind of navigate your desire in some kind of weird way. And then you can then use that language to then communicate your desire to others in a way that doesn't make you look totally crazy. By saying like, I would like to learn calculus. I mean, that may still make you look crazy because what kind of weird person wants to learn calculus, but yeah. <laughs> So your flow is like pleasure, desire. No, we didn't do it a pleasure. We, no, I. We didn't. Oh, you're trying to put everything together. I'm trying to. I need like maps in my head, but it's like pleasure, I will, desire, I will, and chabad. I will tell you. I will tell you the this, the following rule. Okay, this is a general rule in Judaism. It's especially true in um, Hasidus, but it's a general in Judaism. Torah does not, is not generally done in where everything is mapped out in once. The notion that you can like map everything out um, really is a kind of a Greek way of thinking. The first person who really tried to apply that was the Rambam when he wrote his guide, the Mishnah Torah, the, his halachic work. He really tried to organize it. So he made 14 books and each book has a set of halachas, there's 83 halachas, and you can like look up a halacha based on figuring out, well, where would it be conceptually? Kind of a conceptual framing of everything. Um, and he was actually criticized for this. The mission is not arranged that way. The mission is arranged in very associative manners, pragmatically. The Talmud is definitely like that. Most of the codes, right? Even the actual code of Jewish law that's actually arranged is actually done in a little much tends towards that. For instance, it starts off in the morning and then you go the halachas, you go through the day. It's very associative. Um, and then you do the halachas of the week, which is Shabbos, and then you do the halachas of the month, and the halachas on the yearly cycle. Like, it, it, it tends to have a kind of a practical associative way of arranging things. Now, what that means is, is that knowledge is presented in ways that are useful given the topic at hand and never get you to get the whole picture. And if you invest yourself sufficiently in enough learning, a holistic picture emerges. It is generally the case when you spend your time trying to put everything together into one picture, you end up not understanding what's going on. He did not speak here about anything higher in the human psyche than your knowledge that things are desirable. And there is a reason for that. Because the mental model that we need to understand, to understand that idea, it doesn't go beyond that. And if you try to embed that in something else without having a deep understanding of it and that and the other thing, it's not going to work. Um, usually what ends up happening is that there's always a certain group of people. They tend to be more technically minded, um, but not always. They're really interested in mapping everything out. And that ends up becoming an end in of itself, and they actually never understand anything. Um, so... I would recommend 
limiting yourself to understanding all the pieces of the puzzle that's presented here and only here. And over time, what will emerge is these, these things will, will start to coalesce into kind of a, a more complex, richer picture. Um, and this is true with Gemara, also it's true with Halacha. I'm sure you've had this experience. Someone's teaching Halacha and they're trying to like teach you something and someone brings up something else and like, and has that fit. And it's just like, you can't, I once heard a, a, a physicist, he said that um, the ancient Greeks were very good about trying to like make everything fit into a nice system. Um, but it's actually not that useful as a physicist, getting all the math to work that way, because it's unnecessarily awkward and doesn't get down the level of nuance. He said the Babylonians, they just like figured out specific mathematical theorems that work for specific things. They didn't necessarily appreciate how they all can be unified, but there was actually allowed them to be much more pragmatic. I mean, in a certain sense that those two sides, what he was talking about, exist here. And by and large, really understanding Torah means dealing with just these few moving pieces, understanding them, then understanding them. Then that becomes one piece, and then that becomes one piece, and those things move together. And eventually you get a bigger and bigger thing. It is very rare that a person gets a full picture of everything. Um, such people are like, you know, a few in a generation. Which would make sense, because if the Torah is meant to speak at all levels of reality, about all levels of detail, and all levels of nuance, how would you expect to have it all crystallized in one picture in your mind? Um, so, I, I realize the frustration, I've experienced the frustration. Um, the solution is not to make an overly detailed map and chart. The solution is to understand the ideas here, and when those fuse into one clear concept, then that can be used as a single piece of knowledge and incorporated into some other discussion at a later point. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. That's my objection to the chart. Because you, know, you can put everything on the map, but you have no idea what it means, and so you, it's not really knowledge of anything. Um, has anyone ever made a chart in any school subject? on their own, like when they're like studying, like they chart something out, yeah? How many rows, if you're like making a chart with like rows and columns, how many rows can you put in a chart before it stops being useful? For what? Rows, like you're putting, you're like making a chart, like you have like, yeah. how many rows can you put on a chart, how many columns can you put on a chart to organize knowledge like before it stops being useful? There's a point. Some people it's three, some people it's four. I would say once you're past two, you're already in dangerous territory because our minds are really good at compare and contrast. Once you have three things, you really need to be invested in what's happening and, and you just keep adding more and more columns and rows. Um, I'm teaching now Gemara and I'm teaching, the, the, we learned Rashi's interpretation and Natosa's interpretation and it's, it's that every point can be understood this way or that way, just even having just two rows of, of trains of thought is already hard for most people. So that's the unfortunate but true answer. All right. We will end here. Tomorrow's questions and answers.